Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a 4.5 because y'all, it is a story of survival. Well, in the physical sense, I should say. You see, in the summer of 1974, Texas Christian University student Janelle Kirby was attacked in her own apartment by a man she did not know. He shot her five times, but Janelle lived to tell her story. However, it took 12 years before her attacker was found, and for 12 years, two separate lives were ruined in a way that most of us couldn't even begin to fathom. Because there are actually three people involved in this story. Janelle her actual attacker, and the man who police now say was wrongfully accused of her attack. This episode is titled Janelle Kirby, A Survivor's Story. So without further ado, let's get started. Before I dive into the episode, I want to start by giving you a little disclaimer and basically just being transparent that most of the information I'm going to share with you today came from one article written by Mike Cochran for the Associated Press in March of 1987. So I say that because as I was researching, I realized this same article kept popping up, but it was just republished by several other publications, including the Los Angeles Times and United Press International. But I also pulled some additional information from other sources as well, including the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, a news script from WBAP-TV, which is a former NBC station in Fort Worth, and I also got some information from two separate independent news blogs. Okay, so now let's get started. On the evening of June 11, 1974, TCU student, 20-year-old Janelle Kirby, was at home in her garage apartment located on Lubbock Avenue in Fort Worth, Texas. Shortly before nightfall, Janelle was startled by a neatly dressed young man who had somehow made his way into her apartment. Janelle had no time to react before she realized he had a 22 caliber pistol pointed straight at her head. He then pulled a pair of handcuffs out of his pocket and ordered her to place her hands on the bed in front of her. Janelle did what she was told, but as he snapped one of the cuffs onto her wrist, she used her other hand to try and grab the gun. The two struggled before falling to the floor. Janelle screamed, so the man violently put his hand over her mouth to muffle the noise. But she wasn't going down like this. She was literally thinking, not me, not today, as she bit down onto his hand. Janelle recalled what happened next, and she told Mike Cochran for the Associated Press, quote, He pulled away, 
rising, leaving me on the floor, and with both hands on the pistol, started shooting at me." End quote. The man shot Janelle a total of five times in the head and face before he rifled through her purse and fled out the door. But as he was running out, Janelle managed to scream, you coward! Somehow, fatally wounded, Janelle was then able to drag herself down the stairs. At about 9.15 p.m., a neighbor found her and rushed her to the hospital. Janelle remembered lying in the hospital bed, fading in and out of consciousness, when she heard a doctor say, she's almost gone. As in, they quite literally expected her to succumb to her brutal injuries. But y'all, Janelle was a fighter, and she miraculously proved the doctor wrong. After a week in ICU, she slowly began to recover, and within a couple of months, she was able to speak to police and help them with the investigation. On August 29, 1974, investigators showed Janelle a photo spread of potential suspects in hope that she might recognize one of them as her assailant. The photo she chose was a picture of a man named Kenneth Leslie Miller, a 24-year-old Army veteran. Janelle told the police, quote, He had funny-looking eyes that I'll never forget. I am positive that he is the man who shot me, end quote. However, I do want you to keep in mind a couple of things before we move on. One, Janelle was well enough to speak and function and perhaps identify the person responsible for attacking her. But y'all, she also suffered an incredibly traumatic experience, both emotionally and mentally, but also physically. So all I'm saying is that I mean, clearly this has never happened to me, but I just can't imagine that if you were shot in the head and neck five different times, you could really identify anyone and be certain of it. Okay, so the second thing that I want you to know is that police had been after Kenneth Miller long before Janelle ever identified him as her attacker. According to Cochran's Associated Press article, Miller enlisted in the Army as a teenager and was actually still a teen when he returned to the U.S. from Vietnam in 1969. But apparently he was a huge asset to the American military because he won a Bronze Star, a Silver Star, and a Purple Heart, among other military honors. Now, as a young adult, Miller was a brown-haired bachelor who liked his guns, motorcycle, women, and dogs, which painted somewhat of a target on his back. In fact, he liked guns so much and was almost like infatuated with them or more like had a fetish with them that his neighbor became suspicious and alerted police. And then they became so suspicious that ATF agents raided his apartment on July 13th, 1974. They were searching for drugs and illegal weapons that they were so sure he was dealing, but they only found a small amount of marijuana and nothing else. Then about a month later on August 14th, Local and federal narcotics agents raided Miller's apartment again, once again looking for drugs and weapons. And once again, they found nothing. This time, though, Miller was asleep when they arrived. Miller explained exactly how it went down that night. He said, quote, They broke down the door and someone shoved a gun in my face. Two men yanked me out of bed and up against a wall. I was facing the wall and they kept kicking my feet apart. End quote. He went on to say that one narcotics officer, a guy named Ray Armand, even banged Miller's head against the wall with so much force that it literally knocked a hole in the plaster. According to Cochran's Associated Press article, Miller had to undergo emergency surgery from the beating, and doctors ended up having to remove his spleen. Although the raid squad later denied beating Miller and insisted he had damaged his spleen in a motorcycle accident, 
The police chief ordered for both Armand and another fellow narcotics officer, J.C. Williams, to be suspended from the force. So, knowing all of this about Miller, investigators wondered if he might be responsible for Janelle's attack as well, which is why they included him in the photo spread. And when Janelle did end up picking his photo from the lineup, she recalled that they were, quote, very enthusiastic about me picking that particular photo. You got the feeling he was not well-liked, to put it mildly, and they felt he had it coming to him, end quote. However, Janelle also admitted that at the time, her mental state was so muddled and hazy that it was hard for her to recall if police influenced her choice or not. Regardless, to police, they had their guy, and they were glad to get him off the streets. But I guess not too glad? <laughs> because, y'all, it took 31 days for police to arrest Miller. They waited until September 30th, 1974, to make his arrest, which just happened to be on the same day that the suspended officers, you know, Armand and Williams, who had allegedly beaten him, the same day that they had their appeal hearing for their suspension. So basically it was like to see if they could be reinstated or not. So anyway, yes, you heard that right, the same day. And here's how they arrested him. So at this hearing, Miller testified that Williams had not heard him. However, Armand, the guy who did hurt him and beat him and shoved him against the wall, well, when Miller was asked to point him out in the room during the hearing, Miller couldn't because he honestly did not recognize him. Why? Well, apparently, according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Armand's attorney, Jerry Lofton, instructed Armand to dramatically alter his appearance for this reason. According to the article, quote, whereas Armand, as a narcotics officer, usually had long hair, wore jeans, and freely displayed his distinctive teeth, Lofton dressed Armand in a suit, had his hair cut short, and made the officer keep his mouth closed, end quote. And just as a side note, whenever they said distinctive teeth, <laughs> like they were like saying like he had like buck teeth or like protruding teeth. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny. Anyway, essentially, the hearing was null and void since no evidence was presented that the officers assaulted Miller, and then both Armand and Williams were reinstated right then and there. But just before the hearing ended, two homicide detectives approached Miller and arrested him on the spot for the attack and attempted murder of Janelle Kirby. Cochran described the situation in his article by writing, quote, in a matter of seconds, the accuser had become the accused, end quote. Miller went to trial for Janelle's attempted murder in March of 1975. The prosecution's case against him primarily rested on Janelle's testimony and one single piece of circumstantial evidence, which was a pair of handcuffs they just happened to find in Miller's possession. During the trial, Miller's attorney, Bill Magnuson, argued that Miller actually did not fit the physical description that Janelle had provided. She had described the assailant as shorter and younger than Miller appeared to be. She said the guy was clean-shaven, neatly dressed, and wore casual shoes and a wedding band. Miller, on the other hand, looked more like Rambo, literally. And, well, anyway, as you can see, that description did not really fit him at all. And he definitely wasn't married. And the defense's strategy did get to the jury because they appeared to be deadlocked two different times before they ultimately came back with a guilty verdict on March 28, 1975. Now, while Miller would be sentenced to 70 years in prison, he didn't stick around long enough to find out. You see, it was in this moment that they announced the guilty verdict 
that Miller looked at his friends who were with him in the courtroom and said, quote unquote, I'm going. And he did just that. He fled out of there, jumped into one of his friend's cars, and sped away from the courthouse. This would begin his 12 years on the run, constantly looking over his shoulder, sleeping with one eye open, hoping and praying the law didn't catch up with him. But on the other side, this began 12 years of pure agony and trauma that Janelle would never shake. According to Cochran's article, Janelle spent most of the trial in protective custody. But on the day Miller fled, she was out with fellow TCU friends at a picnic by a local lake. She explained, quote, I was with my boyfriend and we kept thinking someone was following us. I felt like everything that I had gone through was for nothing, that I was never going to feel safe again, end quote. And she was right. After the trial, Janelle, originally from Florida, returned to her home state, which is where her divorced mother lived. She tried to move on with her life, but it was nearly impossible for her to escape the horror she experienced that night in her apartment, let alone the torture of knowing that her alleged assailant was out there somewhere on the run. After the attack, Janelle was left with one bullet still lodged in her brain and fierce scars on her face and head. While these were the physical daily reminders of her attack, she also suffered in other ways, as in she experienced speech difficulties and memory loss, and she said all this cost her at least one job. According to Cochrane's article, doctors prescribed Janelle an anti-convulsion drug for her occasional seizures, but it was a never-ending loop with no relief because those drugs would only exacerbate memory lapses and cause slurred speech. And to top all of this off, Janelle was also embarrassed and ashamed. She worried that her garbled words would cause others to think less of her. And she worried that the bullet still inside her brain would shake loose or shift and cause even more permanent damage. And Janelle's mother did not help either. Like her mother was not supportive or sympathetic of her daughter in the least. For example, her mother became so overwhelmed with Janelle's trauma and fear that she left Florida and moved to New Mexico, basically leaving Janelle to recover and heal on her own. Janelle explained, quote, My mother thought this shouldn't have happened to me. You know how some people believe that God punishes you? Somehow, I think my mother believes that I let it happen, or it was my fault that this man came in and shot me. Even when I was in the hospital, all she could think to say to me was something like, You've ruined yourself. That's what she said. You've ruined yourself, end quote. Um, is your heart breaking in two? Because mine sure is. Ugh. But there was some light in Janelle's life too, which came in early 1976 when she began dating a kind, sweet, protective young man named Jim. Jim had moved to Florida from Chicago Heights, Illinois. And he explained that he fell for Janelle the moment he met her and the two wasted no time in their newfound love. By March of 1976, Jim and Janelle were married. According to Cochran's Associated Press article, Jim worked a variety of jobs and Janelle stepped up her recovery efforts. She even persuaded the doctors to take her off the anti-convulsion meds so she could try and go back to school, specifically for nursing. Although Janelle had to study longer and harder and more intensely than others to achieve the same results, she took her studies seriously and persevered. Jim even said that when Janelle made her first A in a class, she cried all day because she was so proud of the accomplishment. But still, Janelle struggled with the trauma and her physical and mental scars. Jim said, quote, I know there have been times when she wished she was dead. She said it would have been better for everybody, 
end quote. You see, even though Janelle was married to a wonderful, caring man, fear still controlled her life often, and rightfully so. For example, Jim returned home late one night from work and slipped into the house quietly as to not disturb his sleeping wife. But she woke up anyway and was frightened out of her mind. Jim said, quote, she had an axe and a knife on the bed and was pointing a spear gun at me. Then she broke down and cried in relief, end quote. After this, Jim decided to buy his wife a handgun to help her feel safer when she was at home alone. Months later, though, he came home much earlier than expected, and he was rifling around a bit outside before, you know, he made his way into the house. But when he did finally make his way through the door, he came face to face with Janelle pointing the pistol at him. As years went on, Janelle could easily be frightened to tears by loud sounds, such as firecrackers exploding or a gunfight on TV even. And Jim had grown accustomed to checking out the slightest noise day or night. Regardless, though, Janelle made a life for herself with Jim and tried to move on from her attack the best she could, despite the fact that her assailant was still out there. By June of 1986, so 12 years after the attack, Janelle and Jim were living in a small house they built in Florida where they often watched rented movies together, rarely leaving the house. Janelle also enjoyed focusing on her studies, reading novels, and hanging out with her pet cat named Morris. Now, let's shift gears for a bit and go back to Kenneth Miller, who had fled the courtroom back in 1975. While Janelle was living in constant fear for her life from 1975 to 1986, Miller was moving around the country, evading the law, constantly looking over his shoulder. According to Cochran's article, Miller first stopped at the home of Diana Opperman and took refuge at her place for a while. Now, side note, Diana Opperman just happened to be the legal secretary for Miller's lawyer, Bill Magnuson, so put a pin in that. Anyway, Miller stayed with her for about two weeks before he decided to flee town officially and go on the run. He first planned to go to Michigan, but instead briefly went to Georgia before he went back to Texas for Diana Opperman. You see, the two had been flirting with the idea of a relationship before he fled, but now Miller wanted to start an actual relationship with her. And this time she was prepared to join him on the run. So the two headed to Arizona, specifically Winslow, Arizona, simply because it's mentioned in the song lyrics of Take It Easy by the Eagles. Opperman recalled, quote, We left Texas with nothing, very little clothes even. I wiped out my savings account, about $1,000, which was pretty good for a 21-year-old kid back in those days. Everything I had, I sunk into him, monetarily and emotionally. I don't know if I was trying to make up for what Texas did to him or was just that crazy in love. Who knows? End quote. They stayed in Winslow for only a short time before moving on to Flagstaff, Arizona. There, Opperman found a job with a criminal law firm and Miller worked as an auto mechanic. Now, Miller had no prior experience or knowledge of fixing cars, but he did the whole fake it till you make it thing by carrying around an instruction manual that he'd often reference on the fly. However, one day his boss caught him looking through the manual and fired him on the spot. Not for poor work, but for basically lying about his mechanical experience. Miller then knew he needed to find and keep a job as inconspicuously as he possibly could, so he started using his former roommate's name who he had lived with in Fort Worth. The name he would now go by was Alan McGinnis, which is the name he used when he landed a job with one of the biggest garages in Flagstaff, a garage that provided routine maintenance for state and local police cars. 
Though the couple was quite happy in Flagstaff, Miller began to feel an overwhelming sense of panic and paranoia, and the two decided to move to yet another state. This time, they headed to California to search for a job and a life there. Miller ended up finding work in Santa Barbara, but he also got stopped by the California Highway Patrol in Van Nuys. According to Cochran's article, Miller initially thought he had been flagged for improperly changing lanes, but he was actually arrested for driving under the influence. And I know what you're thinking, but California law enforcement did not link him back to the Fort Worth attack and shooting, not yet anyway, though Miller knew it could happen at any moment. So Miller quickly hawked his watch for bail money and booked it back to Flagstaff. Not long after, though, Miller and Opperman decided to try their luck in Las Vegas. It was there that the couple would settle for the next several years and really try to make a nice life for themselves in the Nevada desert. Miller landed several jobs for one of the top law firms in town. She also worked for a popular Nevada politician who was eventually elected to the House of Representatives in 1986. As the years went by, Miller and Opperman thrived in Vegas, at least as much as they could. They tied the knot in the fall of 1977, and Miller, operating under the name of Alan McGinnis, started working as a newspaper distributor. Before long, he was bringing home at least $1,000 per week, and against his wife's wishes, he bought a four-bedroom house with a swimming pool. Then, in their driveway, sat a motorcycle, a Ford Bronco, a van, and a small pickup truck. However, they still faced challenges, you know, as any couple running from the law would. <laughs> Oberman explained, quote, We just tried to live as best we could, like a normal couple, but you always have the extra obstacles, like no real name or credit references, end quote. And Miller knew that their happiness was probably temporary, however long that might be. He said, quote, Any time, night or day, they could come take all this away and put me in jail and arrest my wife as an accessory, end quote. And this thought, or realization, led Miller down a dark and bitter path. He began drinking much more heavily as tragedy and uncertainty got the best of him. According to Cochran's reporting, Miller's father died back in Fort Worth, but for obvious reasons, Miller could not risk returning to Texas for the funeral. Then, Miller's mom also passed away. And once again, he could not go back to properly grieve or bury his own mother. Opperman explained, quote, his mom wrote us a tear-jerking letter asking for money. We sent her some for a while, only she ended up having a heart attack, and nobody was there to save her, and she lay there on the floor all day long before somebody came and discovered the body, end quote. Uh, yeah, so pretty heavy stuff. Then, Miller's and Opperman's marriage crumbled too. The boiling point came in December 1982. During an argument, Miller handed Opperman his pistol and told her, quote, why don't you just shoot me and put me out of my misery, end quote. It wasn't long after that when Miller officially went too far. Opperman said Miller grabbed her by the throat and pushed her up against the wall. He told her that he could hurt her if he wanted to, which both scared and angered Opperman. She ended up filing for divorce primarily because he wouldn't stop drinking, and in 1983, Opperman went back to Texas, leaving her ex-husband behind. And behind he was, at a very rapid pace, Miller lost his house, his vehicles, and his job. He had basically hit rock bottom. For the next several months, Miller shacked up with a new girlfriend and continued his life on the run, roaming through at least six different states, including Utah, California, Colorado, Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. 
Back in Texas, though, while Miller was spiraling in Vegas and hopping around from state to state, a Texas cop by the name of Leonard Schilling was determined to find Miller and put him away for those 70 years to which he was originally sentenced. So when Schilling made sergeant, he was drafted for a job that basically nobody wanted, the coordinator of Crime Stoppers, a program that pays cash rewards for crime-solving tips. In this position, Schilling decided to make the most of it, and he came up with the idea of Fort Worth's 10 Most Wanted, a program he mirrored from the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. At the top of his list, though, the Fort Worth Most Wanted, Schilling placed a photo of Kenneth Miller. And soon, his wanted poster was circulating the Dallas-Fort Worth area, labeling Miller as an armed and extremely dangerous person. The poster also offered a $1,000 reward for any tips leading to his arrest. After this, it didn't take long before the tips came flooding in. One caller said Miller had been back in Fort Worth, briefly in 1985, and that he was using the name Alan McGinnis. Then, the call came in from someone who wanted to claim the $1,000. The call that informed Schilling that, one, Miller was recently living in Las Vegas, two, he had worked for a newspaper there, and three, he had married a legal secretary named Diana Opperman. So basically, the jig was up. Miller's time on the run was finally coming to an end. Schilling quickly acted on the tips he received, starting with calling the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police, demanding that Miller or McGinnis or whoever this guy was be arrested ASAP. According to Cochran's Associated Press article, police records in Las Vegas recorded that a guy by the name of Alan Dwayne McGinnis had been arrested three or four times on drinking charges and once for carrying a concealed weapon. It didn't take long for Schilling and the Las Vegas police to put two and two together and realize that McGinnis was, in fact, Kenneth Miller. Miller was officially caught on June 9, 1986. On that day, he was going through the checkout line of a Las Vegas wholesale store with a box that supposedly contained an inexpensive fan. The clerk, thinking the box was awfully heavy for just a fan, opened it and discovered that it really contained two videotape recorders and two electric drills. According to Miller, he said he was just as surprised as the clerk when she opened the box. He insisted that the brother of one of his friends asked Miller to pay for the item while he fetched his truck. But obviously, the store clerk wasn't buying his story, and the store manager ended up calling the police to handle the situation. The responding officer, doing a routine check, informed Miller that he had a drunk driving warrant out for his arrest. And well, the rest of the story was history. The dots were quickly connected and Miller was hauled off in handcuffs. So that evening, the same evening that Schilling was arrested in Vegas, back in Texas, Schilling went out to a local saloon to celebrate nabbing Janelle's shooter after 12 long years. While there, in the middle of his celebration with fellow officers, Schilling received an unsettling phone call. The caller on the other end told him, quote, You got the wrong guy. Miller didn't shoot Janelle Kirby. Check out a man named William Ted Wilhoit. End quote. Then the caller told Schilling where he could find Wilhoit. He was in a Texas state prison, more specifically in Huntsville, Texas. So the next morning, Schilling began sifting and sorting through police files, looking for as much information on this Ted Wilhoit guy as he possibly could find. And what he did find disturbed him to his core. He quickly realized that, yes, most likely they arrested and convicted the wrong guy. For starters, Wilhoit's appearance was much more consistent with Janelle's description of her assailant. He was clean-shaven, young, and had blonde hair and blue eyes. 
Also, Will Hoy also had a rap sheet a mile long. In fact, four years after Janelle's attack in September of 1978, a woman was blow drying her hair in the bedroom of her Abilene, Texas home when she looked up to find an intruder pointing a gun at her. He demanded drugs and money, but when she told him that she had neither of those things, he forced her to strip and lie down, and then he raped her. The woman later described the man as clean-shaven, young, possibly in his mid-30s, with thinning blonde hair and blue eyes. She said he was wearing a button-down shirt and double-knit slacks, as in he was nicely dressed, just as Janelle had recalled. And the man also had bound her with some sort of thumb cuffs, which... I definitely had to look up what thumb cuffs are, and they're basically just like a mini version of handcuffs, but they go on your thumbs. Anyway, but again, just as Janelle had described four years prior, the woman in Abilene spoke of the man's distinctive eyes. Then in a picture lineup, the woman pointed to a mugshot of William Ted Wilhoy and identified him as her attacker and rapist. She was so certain it was him in the photograph that the woman's husband recalled how they drove past Will Hoyt's apartment after leaving the police station, and they saw Will Hoyt walk out. The man said his wife burst into tears at the sight of him. After that, a jury sent Will Hoyt to prison for 40 years, which is where he was when Schilling got the call to look into him. Plus, Schilling also discovered that at the time of Janelle's attack in 1974, Will Hoyt lived within just a few blocks of Janelle's apartment in Fort Worth, and he had been arrested in connection to at least 20 burglary cases, one armed robbery, and was brought to trial on a separate rape charge. So, Will Hoyt was looking more and more like the actual perpetrator rather than Kenneth Miller. As Schilling was taking a fresh look at Janelle's case, and this time focusing on Will Hoyt instead of Miller, he was joined in the investigation by Fort Worth homicide detective Danny LaRue. Based on the new evidence and considering Will Hoyt's past, both Schilling and LaRue determined that police had arrested the wrong man back in 1974. Here's the thing though, they basically had no case against the guy without an actual confession, especially since Janelle had identified another man as the shooter. But just to be clear, they also never showed her a photo of Will Hoyt, so that's not her fault, like at all. Regardless, they needed a confession if they were going to clear Miller's name and charge Will Hoyt instead. So, Schilling and LaRue offered Will Hoyt a deal. He would be granted immunity from prosecution if he would make a full confession. And he took it. Surrounded by detectives, investigators, and attorneys, Will Hoyt described for the first time exactly what happened on the night of June 11, 1974. He said he had been driving around the TCU campus area before he eventually parked his vehicle next to a church. He then got out, walked down an alley, and entered a gate that led to Janelle's garage apartment. Somehow, remembering the events of the night rather vividly, Will Hoyt said he climbed up the stairs and entered her apartment, which is when he came face to face with a white female he later learned was Janelle Kirby. He specifically remembered the jewelry and blouse she was wearing. He then handcuffed one of her wrists, but when she started to fight him, he raised his pistol. He said he grabbed his gun, but it became entangled in her hair and discharged several times. She then fell to the floor and he ran out of there. But here's the thing. Clearly, I mean, he was telling them critical details of the attack and shooting, but there was one piece of information police had that only the perpetrator would know. The assailant left behind the ejection rod from the 22 caliber pistol he used to shoot Janelle. And apparently investigators had overlooked it, but Janelle's boyfriend at the time later found it stuck in the carpet and handed it over to police. 
According to Cochran's article, an officer had tagged the rod and stuck it in the evidence room, which is where it stayed for 12 years. That is, until Schilling and LaRue came across it when they began their new investigation. This particular piece of information was pretty much the only thing that had not been made public. So, with this in mind, Schilling asked Wilhoy if, upon returning to his car that night, he had noticed anything out of the ordinary about his pistol. Wilhoy, without a pause, responded with, quote, I noticed the cylinder pin had come out of my gun, end quote. At that moment, both Schilling and LaRue exchanged a look. They knew they now had the right guy. Ted Wilhoy, without a doubt, was the man who attacked and shot Janelle Kirby in 1974. It took a while, but on July 11, 1986, Kenneth Miller became a cleared and free man and returned to his home in Vegas. When asked if he had any animosity or frustration toward Janelle for picking out his photo 12 years earlier, he simply said, quote, no, I have no animosity. If Janelle Kirby really thought I did it, what can you say? If she really thought it was me, there is nothing to say, end quote. And as for Miller's charges back in Vegas, well, the Las Vegas police dropped all criminal charges against him after he pleaded guilty to a bad check complaint in exchange for a brief sentence of probation. But when news spread across the country of Miller's release and Will Hoyt's confession, Janelle, back in Florida, called Detective LaRue demanding answers. And um, I would be doing the exact same thing. LaRue said, quote, For about an hour, I gave her the entire story over the telephone. She never interrupted, never asked a question, no ifs, ands, buts, or anything. Afterwards, she just said she would like to get a hold of Miller and apologize for the injustice, end quote. So a telephone call was arranged for the next day, but that call never came. Janelle later said that she was both shocked and confused about the developments of her case. She also said that she kind of felt like LaRue had badgered her in a way into offering an apology that to her was just premature. She needed time to process the new information, to process the new feelings of frustration and confusion that she was overwhelmingly engulfed with. Janelle explained, quote, The police had always been very kind to me and treated me with such courtesy, but I felt LaRue was against me, that he disliked me without knowing me, end quote. Even Janelle's husband, Jim, was alarmed at how upset she became after speaking with LaRue, and Jim insisted that she not call Miller especially because they still didn't know what this Will Hoyt guy even looked like. According to Cochran's article, Janelle requested a photo of Will Hoyt from Texas law enforcement, but they never received it. So a reporter for the Associated Press flew to Florida to show Janelle and Jim a 1974 photo of Will Hoyt, as well as the old wanted poster for Kenneth Miller. That way, Janelle could officially see Will Hoyt and compare the two men. Jim quickly noted the similarities between them, and he said he understood how easily a victim of such a brutal attack could be unable to make a positive identification. Then Jim said something that I think perfectly describes the whole situation. He said, quote, she's been hiding every bit as much as Kenneth Miller, end quote. As for Janelle, though, she still couldn't understand any of it. Looking at the two photos, side by side, hands shaking, she said of Will Hoyt's photo, quote, that man doesn't look a thing like the person who shot me. The nose and the mouth are completely different, and the man's eyes. Her voice trailed off. Janelle said she vividly remembered his eyes, and to her, they didn't belong to Will Hoyt. 
Then the reporter handed Janelle the poster of Miller one last time and asked if it looked like the person she remembered attacking and shooting her. After a long pause, she asked, quote, If I say yes, now that they have declared him to be innocent, isn't that slander? End quote. The reporter simply said, no, it's not. So Janelle replied, quote, then I've just told you what I believe, end quote. Now, normally, I would end the episode with more information about Janelle. You know, try to tie it up and end on where she is now, what she's up to, how she's coped with such a traumatic experience all these years. But honestly, there's just not a lot of information out there, as in none that I can find. But what I did find is that Ted Wilhoyt served about half of his 40-year prison sentence, but was paroled in 1992. Upon his release, he moved to Corpus Christi, Texas. However, after getting out, he went right back to his old ways, and he was sent to prison again for burglary, which obviously violated his parole agreement. Eleven years later then, in 2003, he was paroled again and is now out, roaming free, still living in Texas. A post on an independent news blog noted that Will Hoyt now lives in Robstown, Texas, a city just west of Corpus Christi. So I did some digging, and I was able to verify that there is a man matching his description and bearing the name of Ted Will Hoyt, who currently lives in Robstown, Texas. He is a registered sex offender, and it appears that he also has a wife and an adult daughter. According to the sources I found, Will Hoyt is now 69 years old. So to me... It's just a shame that he couldn't have served more time for so shamefully and brutally shooting Janelle Kirby on that warm summer evening in 1974. But tis the U.S. justice system. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 54. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram, or you can follow my personal account on Instagram at Nicole K. Lynn. That's K-A-L-Y-N-N. And um, put some more TikTok videos up. So y'all be sure to check that out. Actually, I, I know I definitely got one more up. So y'all be sure to check that out. Okay, well, I think that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giara Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.